Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Evacuate the Queen edition of Romaniacs. <laughs> <laughs> Although apparently you, you're not meant to have... If you evacuate a place, you're removing someone from a place. If you evacuate a person, that technically is giving them an enema. <laughs> so let's not evacuate the Queen. I'm Dorian Linsky, and we're prepping the St Valentine's Day massacre headlines for next week's vote on May's zombie deal. In the meantime, I've got two of our regulars on Brexit Doomwatch with me. Naomi Smith is the Chief Operating Officer at Best of Britain and she tweets as Pimlicat. Hello, Naomi. Hello. Downing Street were quick to deny that the Queen will be evacuated due to civil unrest. <laughs> the story's promoted by the Brexit-cautious Sunday Times and Mail on Sunday. Uh, is this supposed to frighten the ERG MPs into backing the deal or frighten the government into extending Article 50 or just frighten the Queen? I mean, she may evacuate herself if, <laughs> if she's really worried about no deal, as I'm sure a few of us are wondering if we're going to have some brown trousers moments. Um, uh, I just think it shows just how calamitous um, leaving the EU has become and the idea that the riots would be so bad as a consequence of no deal that the Queen, who already has probably the most highly trained security staff and bodyguards in the world and lives opposite, is it Wellington Barracks or something that's off mm. that one? Yeah, I mean, that, that she would need protection and God help the rest of us. So I do. I think this is absolutely the government weaponising no deal still uh, and trying to use it as a cheap political ploy to get everyone to back their deal. Also joining us is Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk and self-confessed not the cheeriest fucker on the planet, which would be <laughs> a surprise to listeners. <laughs> How are you, Ian? Yeah, all right. Not that true. <laughs> We're going to talk <laughs> alternative arrangements a little later, but first, there's some good news for you as someone who thinks that the UK-certified dual vape sticks are no good, because HMRC <laughs> has decided to wave EU goods through in a no-deal to keep trade moving, with no checks at 20 ports for a temporary period, according to The Sun. At least we've got our fags. Isn't <laughs> <laughs> that, that such a faggy voice as well? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, hopefully it'll, you know, yeah, well, revive no, the great indus British industry of uh, rum smuggling. Yeah, no, well, this, yeah, but this won't work because it's an EU directive, the thing that limits the nicotine in my dual pods to a level that makes them, frankly, pointless. So all the stuff that would be brought over on the black market would be just as ineffective as the shit that's out here. There's no, no silver lining. There's no silver lining. No, no, there really isn't any silver <laughs> okay. lining to that scenario. Just checking. All <laughs> Brexit. Um, <laughs> this week's special guest is an actual member of the shadowy power elite that secretly runs Britain. As cabinet <laughs> office eminence grieves Mycroft Holmes in TV Sherlock, he literally is the British government. However, confusingly, being an actor, he is also a resident of left behind Royston Vasey. <laughs> so he's seen Brexit from both sides. Welcome to Romaniacs, Mark Gatiss. How are you? Very depressed. I'm fine. <laughs> we'll, we'll change that. We'll change that. I'm fine, yeah. On a scale of one to AC Grayling, how much of a Romaniac are you? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, 5,000. <laughs> Still nowhere near AC <laughs> Are you sort of hard, hard remain, just revoke the whole thing, let's have a people's vote, maybe a, a, like a Norway option dabbler? or? I'll tell you the truth, Dorian. I... I was very keen to come on your show because I like it and I want to spout. <laughs> and in fact, I really just come to swear because I heard Ian. I don't get to swear enough. So I'm, gonna, I'm really going to fucking swear. <laughs> no, but the, I, I've often hesitated about doing anything like this. Uh, I've had several invites to question time and stuff like that because I always feel in the end the terrible revelation is I'm basically just a man in a pub. You know, I have a lot of opinions, a lot of uh, sometimes quite forthright and violent opinions. But in the end, I feel sh slightly shamed when detail comes into it. <laughs> I remember very well Jarvis Cocker on Question Time. I was going, this is amazing. Wow, Jarvis is... And then he says something, and then it's like, so the Middle East, Jarvis. And he just goes... 
<laughs> so, in terms of like the the terrifying, dreary detail of Brexit, which of course is why we're in this fucking shit show in the first place, because <laughs> something which is so complicated should never have been made into a binary choice. I am, like most of the world and the country, a little hazy about what exactly to do. <laughs> but it never but, stops Nadine Doris. But, <laughs> but absolutely, in my heart, I think, I think very simply and very fundamentally, I'm a, I'm, I'm a huge Europhile, but also fundamentally, it is a bulwark against another European war. I think the, I always absolutely. thought the EU is, of course, crazily bureaucratic. It's, it's the money it used to make people's eyes bleed, the, the amount of pointless waste and stupid shuttling about across Europe. And, all those things that have genuinely put people's backs up about seeing people who look like they're just, you know, smirking in their sort of Luxembourg beer and all those things which have genuinely been used to fuel it are, are completely, you know, correct. Or to some, to a greater or lesser extent, there is a great deal to be said for all that mm. sort of stuff. But fundamentally, arguments about bananas versus genocide I know which I'm very frightened now I'm, I'm a natural stupid cockeyed optimist but I find myself daily terrified and really scared about the future of the whole continent because um, Europe is the is where war starts it mm. really is and we could have another European war in a heart it's like Europe's slogan <laughs> where war starts they are rebranding for that so that's I, I, for, to me I'm, I'm an I absolutely love uh, the notion of being part of Je Sans Frontières and everything that goes with freedom of movement and that it's an amazing thing which we are now gleefully flushing down the toilet I saw someone tweet the other day that we've reached that stage it's a very particular might have been you <laughs> very particular part of the English character, not even the British character, which is essentially having 30 pints of cider, taking your shirt off and standing in the middle of a motorway mm -hmm. saying, come on then! <laughs> and that's where we are. Has yeah. it changed your... Uh, <laughs> has it changed your sense of Britain, or like you say, specifically England and, and kind of Very much. who we are? I, I, I used to always think, and maybe in a sort of stupid, you know, lump-in-your-throat Jerusalem kind of way, that what the, what the British always had was a hard-won uh, reputation for basic decency. I know that sounds mm. like a daily, fucking Daily Mail Cricket. thing. You know, no, but it, it's a sort of a kind of muddling through gentleman amateurishness, which kind of does all right. They'd sort of say, if you were in a tight corner, you probably wouldn't mind having some British people there. I think that has been ripped away, exposing what was probably there all the time, which is a fascist mask or fascist face. And that I find that genuinely very upsetting and very depressing because it's not it's not really who we are and and you you read daily examples of 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 amazing kindness and what and decency but there's this sort of uh, I hate to hyperbolize, but I really think this is the closest we've come to anything like the Civil War since the Civil War mm -hmm. there is a roundhead cavalier thing going on here which is very real and the more that those cunts uh, call themselves Brexiteers and imagine they're twiddling their moustaches, <laughs> the more they identify with that sort of pretend buccaneering versus a sort of plodding parliamentary way of doing things properly, i.e. not lying. Mm. And uh, I really feel, you know, it is splitting families and friends and uh, my, my in-laws we didn't speak to for three weeks after after the vote and it's still quite tough. And, it, mm. and I love, I'm very interested, I love the Civil War, uh, as, as a period and I find it incredibly resonant it's, it's there all the way all these things have happened before 
And I feel like we're in that sort of situation. I mean, I said the other day, the only thing re- left for Theresa May is to raise the royal standard in Nottingham and <laughs> get it all started. Yeah. <laughs> so, so true, isn't it? Like, when you read that history... Like I was reading uh, this account of, um, of the trial of the king, of Charles at the end of it. And at the beginning of it, they say, by the will of the people... This is going to now take place. And Rainsborough, so the, the wife of the guy that was commanding the the, uh, the army, sort of went, no, not the people, not even a half of the people, and not even a quarter of the people. And that whole thing, yeah. of, like, there is no one of people. It's yeah. there, right Although there. they were right, Ian. Amazing. Yes, I went to last week, last Tuesday, because I played Charles the First a few years ago, and I, I'm, I'm really interested in him. I'm firmly Crom- on Cromwell's side, but I'm very interested in Charles First. And I went to the it was the 317th anniversary of his execution, and I happened to know that in Whitehall every January the 30th they have a ceremony, and I've always wanted to, to go, and I suddenly realised I was free and I was I could go, so I did. The Society of St. Charles the Martyr, the only, oh, saint, wow. the only saint of the high Anglican faith, and they have a ceremony at the banqueting house where mm. he was executed. It was absolutely fascinating. How do you think they voted in the referendum? I, I, I would... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's it's hard to call that one, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm gonna I take a, a stab. <laughs> were, they, were they quite emotional? It was very interesting because, like all these things, like all churchy things, it was a mixture of sort of mysticism and boredom. It was a high mass which went on. I had to leave. It went on for hours. All the smells and bells. Yeah, bells, amazing, mm. and proper costumes which you don't. So I and look, if you're gonna do it. Yeah, yes, exactly. It's my take on it. But I, I'm from stuff. a very sort of, you know, uh, piss-weak uh, C of E background. It's all, it's all magic to me. <laughs> <laughs> the most amazing thing was the, 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 uh, the deacon's um, sermon was quite angry. And, you know, you're used, to, you're used to, of course, to a sort of baked beans were a bit like Jesus kind of, <laughs> kind of approach. And he was still, he was still, still angry, angry 370 years later. You lost, get over it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Later in the show, we'll be looking at the latest state of play in Brexit. How are those alternative arrangements coming along? Plus, Nissan in Sunderland, will it cut through to leave voters? And did some Remainers exhibit unseemly glee at the carmakers' decision not to invest further in their plant? And a bit more besides. But first, a reminder from Naomi. If you can't get enough Romaniacs in your life, the first of our new exclusive fifth episode is out now, exclusively to Patreon backers. On the new monthly Ask Romaniacs podcast, we answer your questions in a thrilling spin-off show that's part any answers and part Hollyoaks moving on. Ask Romaniacs goes to Patreon backers on the $5 a month tier and upwards, so if you're not supporting the show on Patreon already, it's a really good time to start. Just search Patreon Romaniacs or go to our Facebook page to find out how to sign up. You'll get the new Ask Romaniacs podcast plus the legendary Romaniacs coffee mug. New designs are coming soon, as well as our rather lovely other benefits too. And that means early access to the weekly show, a Monday column from one of our panellists, and early bird access and discounts on Romaniacs live tickets. Ian, Dorian and I are doing one tomorrow night in London with David Schneider and we're already doing push-ups to get ready. If you're a Patreon supporter on the two-tier... Uh, level look under your memberships and give yourself an executive upgrade to get the new show and more search patreon romaniacs or go to our facebook page to find out more thanks naomi okay on to the current state of the disunion this week the government went back to brussels to reopen negotiations on the irish backstop as part of a withdrawal deal that the eu said was definitely closed Ian, there's much talk of alternative arrangements of course we'd all like alternative arrangements in a vague sense in Mm. our lives um but, but what's it actually mean it just seems to sort of go away and come back with something yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't mean anything. Um, so th- this Malthouse compromise fucking thing that we have to somehow call it. Um, at the heart of it, I mean, there's all this sort of 
just just all this nonsense about, you know, well, we're not going to pay this, but we'll extend the transition, we'll do this. Well, by the way, they're not talking about extending transition. They're talking about shortening transition by one year. The fact that it's constantly reported as extending by one year is, is really quite deeply misleading because they're acting as if the extension mechanism does not exist. And that extension mechanism will be used because we're going to need every fucking second we can get in that scenario. So they're actually talking about reducing the, the transition by one year. Um, and then when you get down to it and you get past all the crap, what you've got is you've got a paper by a guy called Singham. Singham is like like the moron's genius. You know what I mean? Like, so he's, he's, he's always the guy that the Brexiters go to for, for, all, the, for all the detail. His detail, he, he's a... He's a a really quite um, deceptive sort of uh, pundit, really, because he uses he knows all these little bits of WTO stuff, and he just uses it really to cover up the fact that what he's saying doesn't actually have any proper force. Blinding them with science a bit. B- blinding them with with just sort of Words. nonsense terminology, which which no one you know some there's about three guys that could that, that know all the words, and they're just like, well, this is just fucking is, is complete nonsense. So you take like tariff rate quotas, even that as a concept. If you're in an audience, you have to explain what that is. He'll just you know as part of the and then the TRQ's this and TRQ's that, and as long as you just blibbity 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 blibbity, and everyone just feels alienated from the debate and backs out. But when you get to the heart of what he talks about, it's nonsense. In this paper, you get to the heart of it, and it's just more high-tech solutions which do not exist. When you when you come to point 50, he numbers his paragraphs, because apparently if people number paragraphs, it means that you're serious. He numbers paragraphs, and in point 50, it says, oh, and there will obviously be checks for the agricultural business. So, so even on the basis of what it is supposed to do, it does not do it. And it does not do it using technology which doesn't exist. So ultimately, the Morthouse shit has absolutely no substance to it whatsoever. And also, there are other things other than this sort of MaxFact unicorn, <laughs> Fujitsu, whatever it is, uh, technology <laughs> thing behind it. You know, it, it is also seeing us paying fifty billion dollars in the divorce, uh, fifty billion pounds in the divorce bill, with absolutely no certainty of any lasting deal off the back of it. What, as you said, what was previously billed as an implementation period becomes three more years of negotiations under this uh, plan. Um, the tr- having any kind of transition period without a withdrawal agreement has already been completely ruled out by the EU. So really, this is just more blindfold Brexit. It is more, you know, just going into the unknown with it. And it's a real basis for hardliners to do the thing that they really want to do, which they they've been re- resurrecting lately, which is this bloody GATT clause. What is it? Clause 24. 24 yeah. That even... The Brexiteers' only economist, Patrick Minford, has trashed and said it would absolutely wipe out that manufacturing comes from well. completely. That comes from Singham. You can see all of this stuff just come from, from these places. They're like, oh, here's this other article we found that actually sorts everything else. You want to ask one, one pertinent question about Article 24. It requires the consent of both parties. Now, there's many other faults of it that mean that it's not relevant. Yeah. But that fact alone means that it is not suitable for no deal prep. Because and you require the other party to say, we're, going, we're, we're signing up to And that. for that reason, it has never been used to my understanding. I don't think it's ever really been used. I right? No, I don't think it has. And I don't think I think it's also a bit misleading that there isn't one Article 24. I think ev- that there are multiple Article 24s within the GATT framework and it just... it just. Yeah, we we it, know the one that they're talking about there and we know that it doesn't do what they say it does. does. So, but they seem to doesn't. think it's kind of like, uh, like in a movie when there's a kind of team of people all rummaging through files you know, <laughs> and then finally you know, late at night and all stressed out and there's someone picks someone and goes, wait, I've got it! Mm. Yeah. It's clause 20 bazillion. <laughs> and everyone goes, that's it! And they're running to Parliament going, we found the one dog which will solve everything. 12T. 
12th, yes, 12th class. But, it's, <laughs> but isn't it, isn't it, it's, clear, it's, it's like being in a waking nightmare, isn't it? The, the, it's clear that nothing will ever be enough for them. We're, we're just wasting time. May goes back and forth, changing her mind literally between putting her shoes on and taking them off, it seems. And people are so confused, but it's like they they just want out. And now, and now it's the contagion is spreading into the country to be a sort of... You know that 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 new catchphrase. I think we should just get on with it. Mm. Um, has now come mm. to mean a real thing, which is like it doesn't matter what it costs. Doesn't matter if we mm. literally slit our own throats. We must just go. And this now all, all this stuff. It's like mm. you know, mm. they they could pull out a new twelfty claws out, and then it'll be like, oh, we'll talk about that for three days. Then it'll be trashed by yeah. somebody, and then we'll just creep cro- closer and closer to and, no deal, and yeah. that's what they want. And the Malt House stuff is all about intranecine warfare yeah. of the Tory party, and they've been slammed, I think, today. I've seen a few people really going for them over using civil service support mm-hmm. for working on it because it, it isn't reaching out to Labour, mm-hmm. it isn't talking to anyone, mm-hmm. it, is not a, it is not a parliamentary thing, it is not a government thing, it is very much a Conservative Party thing and they shouldn't be using civil service resource to sort of but help we, get we, it through. We seem to have but slid past any of those novel rules a long time ago. A long ago. time ago. She, I mean, she looks like she's given up on it anyway. I mean, the, the speech that Theresa May did in Life. Ireland yesterday was... was yeah, like, <laughs> indeed, yeah. Hope, optimism, anything like that. Um, the speech she gave in, in Ireland, I did that mistake of I didn't watch it. I, I read it, I read the transcript afterwards and actually... I thought it was quite it, good. I thought it was, oh, it's quite good, you know, and, and like, there was some quite solid stuff on... The there are no technological solutions that exist right now. She said, basically, you know, you would have absolutely no friction whatsoever, no infrastructure whatsoever, which is a very, very high mm-hmm, standard. Mm-hmm. Then she said, um, no one's life should be affected by mm-hmm. the move. Now, that goes even further because most of the sort of mutual recognition agreements you have, where you go, your car factory over there, you'll say that it's mm-hmm. that you've done it up to EU rules, we'll do it over here. Mm-hmm. That involves a change in how you do things. So she seemed mm-hmm. to be putting the bar very, very high. Why? Of course, what I hadn't done is, A, I hadn't watched it, so I hadn't felt that special thing where your soul is just crumpling up into mm. a black hole and like leaving your body and I hadn't noticed that of course immediately afterwards when people realised what this meant that Downing Street came out and went oh by the way you're selectively quoting the speech so she already started going back on those one glimmers of sort mm. of accuracy that she'd given but for a moment for about five seconds I felt a little bit of optimism what was Corbyn doing complaining about the backstop which then sort of seemed to get backpedalled by Keir Starmer I don't know what that guy's ever doing about anything and I don't think that he understands it either I think ultimately, uh, let me put it. Okay, let me let me start putting it. This. Fair dues. <laughs> the, the problem. Uh, let, this is an interpretation, all right. But my interpretation is that the problem that Labour has is not with the existence of the backstop. It is with the fact that the the wrappings around it are so vague in terms of where she wants to take us eventually mm-hmm. that it seems almost certain that we would fall into the backstop. Whereas if you were, let's say you have a Labour government and let's say that we take them at their word and they're really talking about single market membership, membership, you know, and, and customs union membership. You could have the backstop in there, but it just kind of wouldn't really matter because it isn't going to happen, yeah. you know, because you've done the conditions yeah, which exactly. would avoid it. I think, and I'm not taking this from Corbyn, I'm taking it from Starmer's interview, specifically, I think his interview on Newsnight on Monday, I think it was, where he was, it sort of seemed to be, the backstop has to be in there, but we're not comfortable with how likely it is that it would come into force. Mm-hmm. And remember, when I think it was Vince Cable that, that made the point, I heard him earlier this week, you've got other borders, uh, Norway, Sweden, and of course Switzerland, where you have to have border checks. Oh, yeah. And those are countries that are far more integrated with the EU mm-hmm. than the Tories will ever accept the mm-hmm. UK being. So it is just nonsensical to, to, to both want no hard border and to say that we wouldn't have to have customs checks. It's, it's just not... 
not going to happen. Naomi, as we get closer to this no-deal precipice, do you get the sense that people's vote is receding as a possibility? It's it's had a rough couple of weeks. Uh, The numbers don't seem to be there, even if Corbyn were to back it. Um, There seems to have been... There's there's a lot more sort of gloom I've noticed on on sort of social media surrounding the prospect. Um, At Christmas, the betting markets had the chance of a final say referendum about 50-50. It was kind of odds on. And those have slipped back now to, I think, about 30%. Given what we know about public sentiment from all of our research and data and how even leavers, you know, a significant proportion of leavers do want another vote, I I think that the population at large still is broadly in favour. We've never had the numbers in Parliament and nothing has actually changed on mm. that. I do find it quite weird how three weeks ago the government has the biggest ever defeat in Parliament, in modern parliamentary history, and then... A couple of weeks later, because those on the Remain side lose a few amendments by, what, 12? I mean, the Cooper one <laughs> fell by 12. All of a sudden it's, oh, God, it's over. Mm-hmm. When, you know, you lost the battle, not the war. And perhaps it's just because I'm a Lib Dem and I'm used to losing that I'm like, <laughs> guys, guys, like, what are you panicking about? This is this is what happens. You lose the battle, but you will eventually win the war. And, that you know, you don't take your... Although the Lib Dems the haven't won, didn't win the war. Well, they do in, they do in you know, by-elections and council elections <laughs> up and down the country, and they've been in coalition in Scotland and they've been in coalition uh, in the UK. I think they, um, so I think they did win because I think the, co- the coalition, which I miss now as a period of great stability, was one of the, one of the few periods in recent history when it's gov- we seem to have a functioning government. Indeed. I think, and also it's absolutely clear now that they, they were a break on the Tories' nastiness and then and amazingly they got all the blame for it. I think mm. it's mm. very, no, very well, sad. That's because they're not as good at politics as the Tories <laughs> um, who saw all of that coming and, and played it very well. But, you know, not a huge amount has actually changed. So in terms of, you know, the likelihood of getting it, look, we... It, we've just got to break it down into its component parts. At the moment, I think it's probably right that we're not pushing that message too much. The key thing that we have to do is to get more Labour MPs over the line next week in the Valentine's Day massacre votes. So this is about getting particularly any kind of revised Yvette Cooper amendment, which, as you'll remember, is the one that seeks to extend um, uh, uh, the the end of Article 50 by about, I think she originally, it was nine months, wasn't it? Mm. And I think what we're hoping is that that amendment will come back, maybe not from her, but maybe from somebody else, with cross-party support, probably for a three-month extension, which appeases all those people that are very worried about European elections. And we get that through, and that is then effectively taking no deal off the table. And once we've done that, we can pivot into people's vote stuff. Because let's remember, hard Brexit destroys the Conservative Party, and any form of Brexit will split the Labour Party. And therefore, the only route out for either of those leaders is to back some kind of final say and give it back to the people and take it off their hands. And I think that option will come back and have its day. So, yes, some of the steam has gone out of some of the campaigners and certainly the media sort of seem to be leaping on the, oh, well, people's vote is dead now. But the reality is not a huge amount has changed and it is still a very attractive option once other ones have been exhausted. I have to say I'm starting to... to, I'm almost at this point thinking that there almost certainly won't be no deal on March 29th. To the point of, like, I'm confident enough to think... I would almost book a holiday. You know what I mean? Like I, I really don't think it's going to happen. I'm Use much... up all your toilet paper, just don't care. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> prepping with the left hand and you know, always eating with the right, all of this. So like, um, I, I do think th- the thing that scares me is is July 1st now. And that's much less movable because, I mean, look, I just think it's a given now. You talk to people in Europe, 
talk to people around government, you talk to people in Westminster, pretty much, they're not saying it publicly yet, but pretty much everyone thinks we are going to extend. Even if you got, even if May got her deal through, there's so much legislation, so many statutory instruments, you've got to extend. Even if it was no deal, you're going to, the EU would want to extend, they need more time to prepare, we would feel the same way. The question then is what would happen in July? And there really is quite a fucking cliff edge in July. Because you would have potentially already had the European parliamentary elections. Mm. And we would not have been in them. Now, that's when things get really dangerous because the European lawyers feel that if a member state has not partaken in those um, elections, the parliament is not legally constituted. And if it's not legally constituted, Mm. none of the decisions that it makes are technically legal either. And they're all open to challenge in the courts. Even the decisions to elect the, the commissioners would be open to challenge in the courts. And that seems to me to be a really, really firm cliff edge that you you can't move past. So each day I get more and more relaxed about March and more and more nervous about July. <laughs> Moving on. God. Last week, this people always make that sound when I talk now. <laughs> this is Just thanks, Captain Bringdown. <laughs> Moving on. Last week, Nissan confirmed it would not continue to invest in its Sunderland plant and the next X-Trail SUV would be made in Japan. The company cited uncertainty around Brexit as the reason for its decision, while Brexit has claimed it was due to decline in demand for diesel vehicles. But surely that's not an either-or scenario. (laughs) Jobs won't be lost immediately, but it's the symbolic end of Nissan's commitment to an area that voted enthusiastically for Brexit. Before we talk about the government's response, the impact on Sunderland workers is likely to be enormous. Um... Do we think some Remainers uh, on Twitter uh, showed a bit too much glee? At the, well, like, you know, sometimes you just constantly find yourself talking about what, so in, what a group thinks, Corbynites or Remainers, whatever, think on Twitter. And then you constantly have to remind yourself, this is actually quite a narrow mm. and uh, disproportionately obnoxious. It is not everyone. But anyway. Uh, Fewer some than people, 17% of the whole of the UK are on Twitter. Some people. Jesus. So it's a tiny subset when you get down into. Yeah. I'm surprised. Well, the, the wisdom of crowds there in, in avoiding it. <laughs> so the response from some is you voted for this, you have to take the consequences. Uh, this seems like a, a rather cold hearted and self defeating response. Yeah, I, I haven't seen that because I don't follow that kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> I must admit, I didn't see much of it either. Mm. I. I've no doubt that people say that. I mean, people say some fucking cretins, terrible shit. Yeah, and I see yeah. loads of dreadful stuff on my side as well, but then I just unfollow. But it's been there's a, the, the thing that I find endlessly frustrating about the news cycle is is that the, the the extent of the lying is never part of the thing. We all know about it. We all talk about it constantly. This this the extent to which the whole thing is corrupt it never becomes part of the question. So then you're not allowed to sort of phrase something like, well, this will just this will be the end of Sunderland. It's very close to where I'm from. Nissan is is an, it's like losing the coal industry. It's mm-hmm. enormous. It's mm-hmm. huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would that would be it. I mean, it's just um, it's it's apocalyptic. Mm. And, but of course, it has absolutely one of the highest leave votes. But those people have been systematically lied to for generations. So it's very hard to pull those things apart. You can't blame people. And I, I haven't, as, as you, I haven't seen much. I haven't seen any crowing really. But um, it, it's it's also it's very hard to sort of sit down and try and pull those things apart they are kind of inextricably linked now you know mm-hmm. the extent to which people as a knee-jerk reaction voted to leave it was exactly the same in wales cornwall's the same you know mm. that you, you everywhere you go in wales there's a roundabout with an eu flag on because they've invested mm. so much money and yet there was this sort of oh, pathological desire to be rid of them and you, it's it's totally inexplicable and the northeast is the same it's, it really really needs the eu and yet in a sort of you know a, a, a vicious way has bitten back 
hmm. and 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 so it's Sunderland now feels to me like a sort of exemplar. It's like. Of, of course, it, of course, this is where it's happened. Of course, it is. Mm-hmm. It seems like a, a terrible natural recoil to the whole situation. It's like uh, everything they said wouldn't happen has happened. Mm-hmm. You know? It plays this almost totemic role, doesn't it? Because Sunderland was one of those results that sort of most yes, most yes. people around. People um, have that thing around sort of making cars as if. Peter always used to talk about this as if that's the only kind of work that Britain does. You know what I mean? Like marketing isn't real work and, you know, fashion isn't real work. But for some reason, whenever the news goes to a scene of, of work happening, it's like, it's a car factory. Yeah, and that's yeah, what yeah. It's, like, it's like the coal industry in America. It's right, just that right, kind yeah, of totemic yeah. industry yeah, where yeah. it's just like, this is, this is proper industry. Right, yeah. right, yeah. It's a representation of the working class. And so for all of that, yeah. it's going to be there. But of course, the thing that we don't do enough is, is thinking... Because you can't see it. This is, the, this is so much of the problem of the way that we think about politics. It's only about the things that we can see. We never talk about the things that we cannot see. So one of the things we can't see is investment, which isn't taking place, which otherwise would be. Opportunity cost. Right. And that, where will you send the TV crew to show that? But if you talk to anyone in business, big businesses to small, what they talk about is the kind of investments that are now not taking place, which otherwise would have been, rather than decisions to move production to another place, which usually is the very worst case scenario because that costs money to mm-hmm. do vox pops in sunderland over the past week and the um the enthusiasm for brexit seems to be replaced by a sort of resignation and cynicism mm. but but no small amount probably of, of let's get on with it um i mean do you get the feeling that the kind of that that, that is almost the dominant uh emotion among leave voters now that you don't, the vox pops that i've seen and there is no shortage of vox pops with leave voters uh, on the nation's TV channels. Um, I think that's all there is. Very, there's, <laughs> very, there's, a, there's, a, there's a dedicated channel <laughs> of vox pops, which is people sta- old, old men pres- standing in market squares. Going, Nick, I think it's Nick Knowles. It's called Let's Get Let's Just Get On With, with It. it. Yeah, and, just and it's just shopping centres. Just made yeah. people going, Oh, Dunkirk Blitz, get on with it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, old man in Market Square. Um, but do you think that's become the sort of dominant emotion? You, I, I see very few people who are just kind yeah. of full of gung-ho optimism. Absolutely. It, it, the, the, the people, are, people either are just not registering Brexit and it's not on their radar and they don't consume current affairs in any shape or form. They don't even listen to local radio news bulletins or, or anything like that and they, they think that we've already left. Or... As, as you said, they just want us to bloody get on with it and they are sick and tired of it being talked about. And what none of us on the Remain side are doing effectively enough is making the case that the only way to stop talking about all of this is to just stay in. Because under any form of Brexit, this thing has, by necessity, got to bleed on and consume huge amounts of parliamentary time, huge amounts of resource uh, and government spending for a decade. Do you think, though, that um, what I cling to is the hope that, as I say, something which should never have been made into a binary choice is actually made into another binary choice, which is in the end, whether probably through a general election, I think, essentially you say this, this is extraordinarily complex, difficult, time-consuming, costly, and, and we're sick of it, or should we just stay? You know what I mean? Mm. So it's like it's like it's like flipping round the original question, which was like, "This is far too." Of course it is. It's such an emotion, a, a totally emotional response. That's what this referendum always was. And people who thought literally the next day we'd somehow be out, 
no one thinks, no one thinks about what the backstop means. No one thinks about the WTO. No one outside of, mm. of the bubble of Westminster because it's an emotional response. We just want rid of them. We don't, mm. we want to go. So if that's, if that's the response, then um, the only way to kick back about that, I think, is to sort of crunch it back down into another one, which is like, we, we, as you say, it's, people, people don't have the patience. They don't understand. They really don't. None of us really do understand the, the extent to which it's going to bleed on forever. The only challenge I would make to that is when you say no one, no one in England... But trust me, people in Northern Ireland yes, feel it. Oh God. And yes. people who yeah. live in port towns in Wales who have not been communicated to about the impact on their ports. Everyone obsesses over Dover and you occasionally get people talking about it a bit on the East Coast. But, you know, these are all areas that actually they, they do they do think about it and they do care about it and they're, they're, they're really seriously fucked off about it. So maybe it just should be England that leaves the UK. So the government offered a secret inducement for Nissan to stay and invest, it turns out. At the same time as May seems to be offering a nice bit of investment on the side to uh, wavering MPs who back a deal. Is it just got to the, uh, have they got to the flinging money at the problem stage? Very much so. And, and is it legit? No. Well, <laughs> so far it's not worked with the DUP and yeah. their one billion bribe or whatever it was. Yeah, although the fucking spectacle of John Mann, a Labour MP, just on TV going, show me the money, like some fucking pound shop soprano. Yeah. Just, I mean, just the, the moral spectacle of it, of just sort of going like, well, it doesn't matter about the long-term decisions of the country, but as long as you just bung me over what, a couple of million quid for my kids, you're just like, fuck's sake, man, at least have some vision, even if you don't have any basic ethics. Um, so there is a thing to say, by the way, about what she paid off to Nissan, which is that we have laws against this stuff. It's called... <laughs> the Bribery Sta- Act 2011. <laughs> well, yeah, OK, sure. No, we, we have better European laws called state aid, which you may have heard brought up by the sort of Lexit sort of calling yeah. us. And this is one of the things that state aid does, which is actually quite left-wing in certain contexts, which is it stops governments just throwing money at multinational corporations who walk around the world going, oh, we'll just go to wherever the lowest, you know, sort of tax base is. Many governments just end up throwing the money and then, oh, surprise, surprise, they've set up a little plant there. By having state aid rules which insist on some kind of transparency around these payments, you actually prevent that from taking place. So it's a useful reminder that this stuff doesn't always go towards the free market. It also goes towards giving governments some control over multinational corporations. Meanwhile, it's been a hectic week all round. So let's have some quick thoughts. It's the, it's, the, it's the ready money round. Fingers on buzzers. Fingers on buzzers. <laughs> uh, the rumours of a general election on June the 6th, the 75th anniversary of D-Day. Ha! <laughs> 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 um, that's a bit on the nose, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you'd send that back for a second draft. Do we... Do we is, this, is, this just, is this just sort of uh, um, tabloid nonsense? Well, didn't you say she said no, therefore it's definitely happening? (laughs) (laughs) It's an inverse reaction. (laughs) I just can't, I just think it's it's not. I don't think that Dan and is planning on doing this. I just think that basically you sit there in the British political system for long enough and if a problem just seems like it can't be shifted from anywhere, you're just like, fucking might as well have a general election then. You know, might as well just shuffle the, the, the card back a little bit and see if anything different comes out. It won't because the problem is not a problem of party membership. It's not an MP problem. Mm. It's cuts across those lines. But that's just the natural instinctive way that we think in our system. What we do know is that the Conservative Party is hiring field organisers on short-term contracts in all of their marginal seats, and we know that they've bought up out-of-home and print media for those weeks. So they are certainly not 
taking it for granted that there won't be a general election and are putting a fair amount of money into it. However, that supposes that uh, conversations between Conservative Central Office and Number exactly. 10 are actually happening, which I don't really think mm. they are. Well, you can tell because they were the one that got caught with their pants down by in the snap election that their own Prime exactly. Minister called. Exactly. So, like, yeah. Yeah. A general election would certainly lift the nation's spirits, though, wouldn't it? <laughs> 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 Not another one! Again, she'll, she'll be back. She's, she's got her own show. I think she's on with Nick Knowles. Not on. another one. <laughs> <laughs> That's on the rival channel. Not another one. <laughs> Brenda. <laughs> I would be surprised if the June the 6th thing because of this extraordinary thing which has gripped us, which is that people who grew up watching war films now actually believe they fought in the war. Mm. And there is a sort of, mm. it's, we might call it the John Mills mentality. They've all mm. just, just decided that that was the war and we always seem to, to do well at the end of those black and white films and therefore <laughs> that must have been it, wasn't it? Mm. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's a sort of national fever dream. I think. But yeah, they call 999 when the KFC... Yeah. Is run out of chicken. Yeah. So, or, um, yeah. yeah. That seems reasonable, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, podcast favourite Daniel Kaczynski MP lying uh, about Britain getting no money from the Marshall Plan, um, which is famously untrue. They got more money. We got more money from the Marshall Plan uh, than anybody else. Is he a liar, an idiot, or a lying idiot? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's everything. It's, it's it's where we are, isn't it? It's the, the, the facts don't matter. No, that, that's a, that's exactly. a, ripped from the Trump uh, paybook. That you know, it's it's how you do it. It's like that's a manifest. Untruth, and then and then he just goes, no, it isn't. And yeah. <laughs> everyone gets up and knows that it's true, but nothing really happens, and it sort of stays on the record mm-hmm. like that. It's it's disgraceful. But it's just so weird because it doesn't even pass like literally the first yeah the the, the Wikipedia test. page test, yes. which is like, oh, I wonder who got the most money from the Marshall Plan. Oh, okay, it was us. I better not say that. <laughs> yeah. And so you just think, does he just check and go? Say it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I mean, yeah, I mean it's, it's so seems many, to be one of the very worst. So, but so many of the Brexiteers' nationalistic stories are just that. They're absolute fiction, totally mm. made up. And it's, it, it's the point that we are making earlier about the D-Day stuff, this wider point that so many of them have just got this completely skewed view about what our history is. Mm. I mean, that... Yeah, Agen- going right back, yeah. not, not just the Second World War, but with you know Agincourt or, yeah. or Cressy, wherever you want to go back, it's a sort of amazing victory mm. without the, anything any mitigation. The war movies are probably the war movies are more accurate. They, the writers actually cared. You probably get you better get a better impression yeah. of the war from the Eaglers Landed than from <laughs> Daniel Kaczynski. Of course. Of course. Mm. Oh yeah, definitely. He's got he's in the privileged position though of having been completely destroyed by two friends of the show, isn't he? Because Alexis Conran just destroyed him on Talk Radio last week. Brilliant stuff. And well a, done, Alexis. about a year ago James O'Brien destroyed him on Newsnight. So he's basically just a passing target for and friends of the show to destroy. Still here. And yes. <laughs> and both times the same tactic. If you notice both times brought up with fact after fact after fact, and he's just like, Well, this is just the typical bias of the blah 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 and I'm obviously not gonna and we go, yeah, yeah. just there's zero shame there. You know what's actually amazing about that interview with Alexis Conran? is you can just fucking say it just say it like he's being given every opportunity to just be like just say okay so you got it wrong so you got it wrong and then we'll, we'll do the and all you got to do is just say no you know okay I've got that wrong you know anyone can fucking see it online that you are wrong you can't conceal it's not some private meeting that you're hiding and you just don't have the basic decency that even for us you to talk about post-truth is almost too generous to him it's a do, failure of his fucking character you can't do he said she said about the Marshall Plan <laughs> <laughs> Well, who was <laughs> None of us were there. Who can say <laughs> what did really you, happened? Did you count the pennies going yes. into our bank account personally? Um, and finally, Labour moderate MPs are apparently ready to leave the party again uh, and form <laughs> I don't know, a new centrist party, a little hangout group. Um, 
I, I don't know. Is this an, is this just another one of those stories that just sort of comes around and they're never actually they're not actually going to do anything? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if the Tory Party proves anything, is that a broad church is obviously extremely successful. <laughs> the only thing is, you have to sort of keep the broad church. Uh, the pillars of it standing in the midst of a, an eternal earthquake <laughs> at the centre of a black hole, and then everything's fine and stable. <laughs> That's where we are. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, history tells us it won't work. They'll any kind of yeah. SDP-like split will just destroy them, and they need to ch affect change from within. But the Labour Party is comprehensively fucked as everything else. I do understand how, if you're a Labour MP, certain Labour MPs. How do you go to the public, having said what you've how said you about the party? How do you go to work? That's what I mean. <laughs> yeah, how do you wake up? I mean, how do you even do it? But I mean, ultimately, you've, you've said what you've said. You've said things like, you know, this is a party that has a real problem with anti-Semitism at its heart. How do you then go on the doorstep and go vote for the party? It is, it is a hard mm -hmm. sell. So I understand how the personal incentive might be towards doing something else. But I don't think that this story has any particular legs to it. It's not like they've got any stars leaving. That's what it felt like as well. It's like, you know. My my definition of star is probably quite low. Like, I, you know, I mean, but yeah. Our guest today, as you've heard, is Mark Gatiss, writer, actor, mainstay of Legal Gentleman, Sherlock and Doctor Who, and regular on the brilliant Talking Pictures TV channel, which shows ancient movies from back when Britain was great and black and white. <laughs> uh, the, the present day. <laughs> Um, as we were talking earlier about your about, about where you grew up, you're from Sedgefield in County Durham, which is is Brexit heartland. But it's it's also um, used to be Tony Blair, Blair's constituency. Yes, yeah. It was a very strange moment in the late '90s, uh, turn of the century, as we can now say, <laughs> when um, when it was the, the northeast was the beating heart of British politics. Because Alan Milburn was there, and, there was, uh, right, yeah. and, and Mandelson was in Hartlepool. Cool. It was an extraordinary yeah, thing. Yeah. It's like well, all and these he thought places. mushy peas was guacamole, didn't he? <laughs> I'm not sure about that. <laughs> um, oh, because you, you did a Mandelson. I you did, yes. I Very good. My happiest time was playing that. And I, I reprised it on the phone for the Brexit Yeah, drama, yeah. Obviously. It was nice to sort of keep it going. Oh, I thought uh, you meant you, you just wound somebody up. By... <laughs> no, no, yeah, it's like, like Noel Edmonds. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Peter's funny phone call. <laughs> That'd be nice. What a great We've got three program three ideas. Program Nick Knowles, uh, the, late, the Bristol lady, and now Peter on the phone, yes. It's called Prince of Darkness. Uh, <laughs> I ring people. <laughs> uh, yes. You yes. give them mortgage advice. Yeah. What was the question? <laughs> oh, right. Because, I mean, during that era, during that kind of sort of Blair era, um, I mean, did did you did you see? I mean, obviously nobody was thinking about oh referendum. Are we going to leave the EU or whatever? <laughs> but the kind of sort of uh, the sort of vaguer, broader discontents that you think that, that fed into the referendum result. Um, oh yeah, in that area was that just something that you would know? There's a very the good book. I wish I could, I'd have to look it up. But there's a very good book called "Coming Back Brockens," which is an old mining term for sort of coming off a shift, sort of knackered. And it's I've forgotten who wrote it. It's a really good book about this guy who's from the northeast and he moved away. Then he got very ill and he had to move back. And it's a sort of memoir about going back into labour heartlands but really on a day-to-day -day basis, really realising that an awful lot of the people he'd grown up with were, were sort of quasi-fascist mm. and that there was a sort of a real hotbed of resentment and racism that you just can't really expunge, even though it's a massive, mm. you know, Labour voting. It's, 
it's like the anti-Semitism problem. It's like it's very, very deep, and it doesn't really, it doesn't really have much truck with 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 modernization or, or the way that politics seems to change in, in in lots of other ways. So, I mean, you know, it's a very where I grew up was a the the, the mining industry was was destroyed, and it, it's uh, it. Like all these other places, it's, a, it's desperately in search of a new industry, and uh, there isn't anything naturally there to do. There's, there's some tourism and stuff like that, that, but like a lot of places, it it gets by, it ambles on. But um, I can absolutely understand, and I, I really, I, 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 as Huey Green used to say, I mean this most sincerely. <laughs> I, I I really do feel that one of the biggest problems that Remain has is to ignore the genuine grievances of of places that have been completely abandoned, genuinely. Like, there are some places in this country which are the equivalent to the American Rust Belt. They have just been abandoned. And you go to certain seaside resorts and stuff and there's just just acres of of closed-up shops and you think, what on earth goes on here anymore? There's nothing left. And so there are... I totally understand it, but the horrific thing to me is the way that that has been manipulated by by, uh, the genuine elite into fuel to to get what they want, which is essentially to melt the country down and flog it off, which is, I think, what's going on. Because um, in, um, I mean, Royston Vasey, I suppose, was this was this epitome of kind of weird nowhere. No, I mean, not not quite left behind. Maybe left behind. Oh, yeah, was, we didn't realise at the time that we were sort of predicting. <laughs> and when we we did three new episodes uh, mm. for the twentieth anniversary of. Of one something and, and uh, <laughs> any excuse? Any excuse? No, he's winning the Perrier Award. That's we decided that was what we might as well do it for, and and we we couldn't resist it. We didn't do it much, but you know, Edward and Tubbs uh, just we, their, their mantra is is what it is, and then Edward actually says, "Take back control." Oh yeah, because, he is a UKIP, but, like, but no, because he, he looks like local Michael Gove. chairman. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> it really was a. It was like this is irresistible. We didn't want to sort of do. It. All the time, bang the drum, but but it's it was it was it was great fun to do, but also you know this is a local shop for local people. There's nothing for you here. Is what Britain has become. When we first made it, it was like a sort of dark reflection of all our childhoods and everything. What we didn't realise was it was a it was a prediction of where we get up to, and it was and we liked you know that that those three specials end with a sort. It's like the end of the crazies. There's a kind yeah. of crazed riot in which everyone has now taken on their mantra and started putting their yeah, noses yeah, up yeah. And, <laughs> and having t-shirts and and it feels like. You know that kind of madness has has gripped us all. Because I think there were bits of, I mean, not just in in, in the League Gentleman, but in some of your other work, there is a kind of interest in this sort of. I mean, I'm not sure when the nostalgia is quite the word, but sort of an interest in in certain kind of uh, aspects of sort of British life and British television from when you were growing oh, up. Oh God, yes. And sort of, you know, sort of whether it's like kind of M.R. James adaptations mm, or, mm. or whatever, just the movies that were on TV. Um, and that seemed like when I was watching them, that just seemed like, oh yes, that's what that's sort of what England felt like then. Mm. But a lot of those things just seem to have sort of come back. I'm yeah. not quite we haven't quite turned into an MR James adaptation. No, but it doesn't I'm feel not sure as about it. <laughs> Who's that? there's someone sitting behind you, Doctor. <laughs> um, it's if I may use my words carefully, I think that somehow or other we- um, nostalgia has been weaponized. Mm. That's what it's like. Because you know, I was talking about going to the Charles the First thing last week. Now, part of me loves this country for having something as weird as the Society of King Charles the Martyr. Mm. As I say, it's the way that you, as Alan Bennett says, you know, you the, the greatest our greatest export, of course, is hypocrisy, and therefore <laughs> you actually feel um, 
I do get emotional listening to Jerusalem, but it's nonsense. I'm not a Christian, a militant atheist, but it makes me cry. I love churches. I hate religion. All these things are what makes a, really makes us British. But I used to love that sort of conflict. I now rather worry and despise it mm. be- because it has been weaponized into this instrument to, to try and pull us back to a, a totally fictional golden age. Joan Bakewell, God bless her, said the other day on Twitter when someone was saying, "We, sh- I want to go back to like it used to be in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And she went, TB, uh, no abortion rights. You know, polio. Polio. It's like I was fucking there. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and it's, it's She madness. looks bloody good for her age, she is, isn't she? amazing. I but bet yeah. some of the No Deal people would just be like, bring TB, polio. Yeah, well, it's bring so, it on. So Stuart it's, Lee does so a good sketch so in that. He's like, the good old days and polio. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing, but it is like... But it, it's people who, even if they were there, they've now got this misplaced thing. My father-in-law, God rest his soul, he's alive. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, he, he's, he's doubled down now on his leave thing with the zeal of a... Of a, 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 a well, you know, it's, it's mad zeal. He, he's so, he knows he's wrong, and therefore he never shuts up about mm. it. And he started to do this sort of... He literally says things like, we were fine before we went in. We weren't. We were the sick man of Europe. We were utterly mm. on the fucking floor. Famously unfine. That's why we went in. We were unfine. And then he sort of says, and who knows what will happen in 20 years' time. Well, well, yes, that goes for anything. So his, his entire <laughs> argument is based on the distant past and a sort of fictional future. Well, that's great. So, But in the meantime... He is voting against the future of his own grandchildren, which I find extraordinary. And like that guy, that vox pop the other day, that in, the, in a Welsh uh, service station, and the guy said uh, his son is about to lose his job at the car factory, and almost d- directly because of Brexit. Well, I didn't vote for him; I voted for me. Well, you're seventy-five. What's mm. wrong with you? Mm. It's like a sort of well, you like this, and you like this. It all goes back, like everything does, to Nigel Neal. My great writing hero, <laughs> who, who was an amazing prophet. He could see round corners. And uh, the last Quatermass from 1979, which now in, it looks even more like a prediction of mm. the future, but it then was a sort of reflection of the energy crisis. And, and, and you know, um, so much of that is sort of resonant, I yes. think. But I always think these days of the brilliant opening narration, which goes like this. If you ignore the bit about the 20th century, it's amazingly pertinent. It goes like this. In that last quarter of the 20th century, society seemed to sicken. Civilized institutions, be they old or new, fell as if some primal disorder were reasserting itself. And men asked themselves, why should this be? I think often about a primal disorder reasserting itself. The world has gone comprehensively fucking crackers, and I think it just... Seems to happen. Well, it was, there's, a, there's another kind of uh, British uh, sort of character, and perhaps it's quite a sort of flattering, uh, flattering myth, um, which you know is sort of epitomised by by Mycroft in, in Sherlock as the sort of the ultimate elitist who's, who's sort of hyper competent. He's kind of mm. sinister and manipulative, but he's hyper competent. Uh, this idea of the sort of suave, efficient, deep state fixer. Yeah. Um, nobody seems to be. In charge, I always like to think that somebody was like that. Yeah. I, I, that's what I, I always say this in interviews. It's like I really wish they were in Mycroft homes because they'd mm. save us now. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's what Mandelson sort of wanted people to believe he was and stuff like that. That, that there are that the, we are living in a world of howling chaos and utter, as is clearly uh, 
shown a word of utter incompetence where people like Chris Grayling, who is scarcely <laughs> human, I think, can, can get to that position. They're all... Thank the other thing I find extraordinary, it makes you realise how little government actually has to happen. Has there been a policy announcement in the last two and a half years? Do you remember... Yeah. I'm genuinely nostalgic for a time they'd say the government would make an announcement about schools or roads or traffic pollution or mm. something. There's, James O'Brien calls it co- Cone's Hotline Nostalgia. Yeah, real stuff. It, well, it's not real. So one of the things that they have done, of course, is to lift the b- public borrowing cap on local authorities to be able to borrow to build homes. But they're sort of pitching this as an end of austerity. But it, it's not them putting money in. It's literally just letting them borrow mm. on the open market against mm. the future value of the of the stock that they'd be building. So it's it's great that they've done it. But but it feels like the, right, the civil service is ticking over the country whilst the government, government is, is completely runs around obsessed headless. with Brexit. There's not yeah. there is nothing else. That's what James Graham mm. said to me when he was writing originally writing yeah. the drama. He said uh, he said, well, what else can I write about? There is oh, there's there's nothing there's else. Nothing. Yeah. It's, it's all consuming. What did you think of Benedict Cumberbatch as? Dominic Cummings as a kind of Sherlock gone wrong, sort of carried away by his own cleverness, and he was just like, "I've just, I've solved it. I've got all this new data," and then just watching suppose, it all go to shit. I mean, the extraordinary thing was, I mean, none of us knew. I didn't know who Dominic Cummings was, because, and, and I think James is brilliantly, he's brilliant at being even-handed, you know, and, and I, I always find that very laudable and quite, quite exciting that you go, oh, I, "I didn't know that." That's you know. It, it, it's not as black and white. The whole thing is not black and white. That's that's the point. I think you want to you want to understand why someone like that could take that on as a challenge, and also that there are these people who who think what we should be doing is stirring the pot, and and the chaos from out of chaos comes something different. Mm. But um, I guess I suppose the danger would be that that. Uh, being so identified with with geniuses, with uh, with Hawking and Turing and Sherlock Holmes, that that perhaps then uh, it makes it look like he's on the right side. <laughs> um, I I I find it very interesting again that the way that the the, the good thing really was that. There isn't. There's a story with no end. I said to James at one stage, well, how, did it, "How does it end?" And he just shrugged. But the point is, it was about the campaign. Therefore, there is a beginning, a middle, and an end to that mm-hmm. part of it. It's just as they found. You know, they, they put title cards up at the end because it's. It was a live story that evening. Mm. You know, I was listening to uh, one of one of the your podcasts uh, from a couple of weeks ago, and it's uh, it's like it's, so. Mail's deal is dead. It's dead, dead, dead. dead. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! It's changed within five minutes. So. Uh, that's that. I suppose is the great challenge: is is to chron- how can you chronicle it as it goes, as it bleeds out, as you so. Might say. You and Stephen Moffat have just finished the script for your new adaptation of Dracula. Mm. Uh, wow! Obviously, undocumented Eastern European immigrant coming to Britain and sponging off the local population. <laughs> I'm afraid I have to argue with you because he was—he's not in fact undocumented. He does it all by the book. But, well, he has no. an English lawyer. He has an English lawyer. He does it properly and uh. fascinatingly and truthfully. <laughs> he has an account at Coots. It's in the book. Yeah. Well, there we go. My apologies. To the, my apologies to the count. <laughs> but in, in American drama now, there seems to be a tendency to sort of look for Trump references and everything, sort of intended or, or not. And you said about, um, you know, when you were reviving League Gentlemen for those three episodes, that you had to sort of acknowledge Brexit in some way. Is it this kind of is such an elephant in the room that that and related issues of national identity sort of seep into your writing, even though? I mean, I'm presuming that you, you're not going to make uh, the story of Dracula 
an extended metaphor for Brexit. But does the fact that it's it's just it occupies such a huge space in the national psyche does that just affect things that you're working I on think generally? It, I think it does. I think you just probably won't know. Again, um, Alan Bennett quotes um, Tom Stoppard as saying that being a writer is a bit like going through customs and then as they open your suitcase, you discover all these things you didn't realise were there with your dirty washing. You know, like, I didn't know that. And those sort of preoccupations, that's very true about preoccupations or, or little things that you can't get out of your head and you think, oh, I've written that character again. It's him again, isn't it? Yeah. He's going that sort of thing. Yeah. But, I, but I, think, I think it does impinge so much. As I say, I'm, I'm by nature stupidly optimistic, but I, I am really, really depressed about the state of the whole world and and particularly this country obviously because it's where we are where we live where we we brought up but it's it's never seemed so so dark and fucked up to me in in my and I love I'm a history I'm a politics obsessive I, and yet I found weirdly my love of the cut and thrust has gone you know, I used to. I remember when Gordon Brown, uh, when Tony, Tony Blair resigned, I watched all that live feed mm. all day like that. You know, like watching. You know, yeah. like, like I was just, I just, I, I eat and drink yeah. that stuff. But all that has gone. I'm not interested in who leads the Tory party. It's gone because I'm, I'm more frightened, and I would just like someone, to, someone to take control. I would like someone competent, and that's what I feel. Uh, is, is impinging on my head. So I'm sure at, at some stage, maybe if there is a future, I will look back <laughs> and go, gosh, that's interesting. Look, that, that is now mm. reflective of time. What I would th- say very quickly about vampires is that they have, through for many generations, been an amazing uh, exemplar of, of their times. Vampires change to, depending on where we are. Uh, what Bram Stoker did brilliantly was turn the traditional vampire, which was a sort of fat sluggish, monstrous thing into a kind of Byronic man and then the film's oh, even more so into a sort mm-hmm. of sexy figure. Uh, Twilight sort of yeah. defanged them into, into very much part of their times. They're often used as metaphors for bankers and that sort of stuff. And I think it, you know, they tend to reflect where we've got I, to. I think zombies as well yes, have done yes, that. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, the George yeah. Romero zombie, yeah. totally different now totally from different. fast, absolutely. terrifying. Yeah. And now, of course, they, they run. Exactly. Which Romero always said they shouldn't. Shouldn't exactly. <laughs> Much scarier now. To cheer you up, ah. I would absolutely love it if we could indulge ourselves in a little bit of which Royston Vasey character would have voted Remain. Remain. Okay, let me help you out here. Not, <laughs> I, I admit I've given this a bit of thought. Oh, good. Okay, so I'll run yeah. it past you and yeah, you can tell me if, okay, if you think yes, it's right or not. Yes. I think Iris the Cleaner was going to vote Leave until Mrs Levinson told her to and then she thought better off it and switched to Remain. That's that's good. Although I, could, I was actually thinking this morning I could absolutely hear her saying, oh, I think this is just cowboy <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think Papa Lazarou finds the xenophobia related to Brexit very distasteful and on reflection wishes that he and his wives had been registered to vote. I think he ate everyone. <laughs> Who just that's, that's how it goes. Yeah, yeah. And my final one was that um, Pauline Campbell Jones voted Leave, but only oh, yeah. to see the look on Nigel Farage's face when his wife got deported. <laughs> no, I, I have a feeling that Pauline would be a weirdly enthusiastic Leave, in that rather disappointing way. Okay. The one I was thinking about as well, in a sort of uh, uh, Gisela Stewart way, is hair lip. Yes. Uh, despite all 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 um, <laughs> all appearances, would would vote Leave. Uh, you know, despite, you know, freedom of movement being his most dominating person. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for indulging me. It's not a broad church. <laughs> <laughs>
The end of the show is coming up, and therefore the Brexit time capsule. Mark Gatiss, as our guest, what would you put into our sub-zero tomb of things that we'll miss or need if Brexit goes oh. ahead? I've thought about this a lot, and I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I wonder when on a gag, but I think I would, going back to the beginning, I would sort of put, I would put our sense of, of basic gentleman amateurish good goodness mm. into it because I that's what I miss now, mm. and I would certainly miss it if if we don't get it, claw it back. That's what I think is gone. Hmm. Plus the Radio Times 1973, just to make it like the Blue Peter. <laughs> <laughs> It's the best radio time. <laughs> For our closing foreign language clip, here is listener James Murray with some ancient Greek. Hotan ka hedos tois logos, phronon kakos, plethos, tepole kakon mega. It means, whenever someone with wicked thoughts wins over the mob with sweet words, the state is in deep shit. <laughs> Oh, right. We we have really upped the game on this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm okay. sure. Oh, but really, yeah. these things are improving at quite a rate. Like, there was a time when there were these sort of four-sentence things about, I think this is all terribly bad idea. Yeah. Now they've turned into these contorted yeah. little bits of, of like multiple geekery. I, I might not say it in English, but I'll bloody well say yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> They're majestic. It's highbrow stuff. Thank you, James. If you're fluent in European language even a dead one, send us a short recording at info at romaniacs.com. Keep them cleanish and we'll use, obviously not that clean, and we'll use the best ones. <laughs> and that's the end of the show. Mark Gatiss, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. When is, uh, when is Dracula due? Uh, next year. Way? Beginning of next year. It'll be on. So he's... <laughs> He has plenty of time to register with the, with the Home Office. Yeah, he's done it, I've told you. <laughs> he did it in 1897, he's clever. Is it set in that same... His period, yes. His period. Period. Oh. Yeah. No mobile phone Draculas? No. Draculas? I've used the plural. It's like, <laughs> it's like speaking Frankenstein's have, name of the monster. There have, what an idiot. There have been a, there have been a few. <laughs> Uh, thanks for coming in and thanks also to our panellists Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt and producer Alex Reese. We're off to practice our scales for Romaniacs Live tomorrow night if you're a Patreon backer and hearing this on Thursday we'll see you then. In the meantime here's our theme tune Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and a salute to some of our Patreon supporters. Hello and thanks from me to Adam Neal Robert Machen Paul McGonagall Alice Ben Reese. Jackie Penalva, Janet Heffernan, Sarah Patterson, and Conrad Bloor. And many thanks from me to Simon Smith, Sir Chittle Benjamin, Charlotte Sunley, Paul Thornton, Huggy Hoogie, Clive Kane, Fiona James, and Nora Seeroiber. Oh, and also Matt McCann. And finally, hello from me to Christopher Attard, Mick Haller, Pete Lamb, Anita Heward, Ian Dundas, and a Manchester triple bill of Ian Brown, Anthony Wilson, and James. <laughs> Fingers crossed for Sean Ryder next week. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. The producer is Andrew Harrison. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.